Well, I'm going to thank you right now for that singing. That's a good way to start off. I hope I can get a sermon that, that matches that. I don't think I'm going to, but uh, that was wonderful. And I appreciate you uh, for the singing and, and the way you edify each other uh, in that time. One of the things uh, that we're going to talk about today is uh, we have society and a culture that is desperate for Jesus. We are trying to reach out to a community, and I think you know and you probably have heard that a lot of churches are disappearing, uh, especially even in churches of Christ. It seems like we're losing lots of folks and lots of members. And the question is always asked, uh, what, what went wrong? What's, what do we need to do to make those things better when we know there's people out there that are desperate for Jesus? We know that there are people who want to have answers to life itself, and we know that Jesus is a big part of a lot of those answers. And so we're going to talk about today uh, what the church needs to do and what the church needs to uh, be thinking about, trying to capture the essence of Jesus. Jesus was one of those people that it seemed like people were drawn to, right? He didn't seem to repel people, uh, like sometimes it seems like churches do in this day and age. Uh, obviously, Jesus is the groom in, in the, the story in uh, Ephesians, where it talks about, Jesus is the groom who's perfect. And then he talks about the church being the bride. Now, Harley and others like us have been up here in the front officiating weddings. And weddings are really funny because there's this belief that if you plan long enough that you can have an absolute perfect wedding. And you know, that's why you're giggling, those don't happen. Uh, there's something that goes wrong. The you know, ring bearer is perfect on the rehearsal night, and then on the actual day of the wedding, he takes off running with the ring out in the parking lot. Uh, it's just not going to go well. Or you have that magic moment in which the bride has been waiting for this moment. This is her day. I hope you guys know it ain't your day. It's the bride's day. Because she's going to be behind that door, and the music is going to swell and those doors are going to open, and the sun's going to shine through, and she's going to have this radiance back behind her. And there had been a team of beauticians working on her for about three weeks. <laughs> and you look good. You look really good, especially good from 50 feet away. You, I can't see a flaw in you. <laughs> and then you walk down the aisle. And Harley and others, we, we get to see you up close, and we start to go, whoa. That's, that's quite a blemish right, right in the middle of your forehead. And, and you've seen that they've been using spackling, trying to put stuff around that to cover it up. Am I telling you the truth? Telling the truth, Harley? And you try not to let it show on your face to the groom, right? You don't try to you know, make one of these faces, back up. Or go, you may want to step back on this aisle just a little bit. Because that's the bride, right? The groom's perfect. The bride is not always perfect. And the rest of the ceremony, it has various things that go wrong with it. Uh, I'll never forget, I was doing a wedding, and, you know, they had these unity candles, which I hate unity candles, because they don't ever work correctly. And this one really did not work correctly, because the cute little couple, they came over here with their two little candles, and they were going to light that candle in the middle, and it didn't light. And it didn't light. Didn't light three times. They're trying to light that with those two little candles. Finally, one of the groomsmen on the other side of the stage says, hand me the candle. And the groom actually picks this huge candle, unity candle, up, pulls it out of the deal, walks across the stage, hands it to this guy. 
the groom on the other side puts it under his arm and reaches into his tux pocket. And he says, he told, me, told us he had a knife. I was thinking a little knife. He pulls out a Bowie knife. <laughs> it's huge. It's a long old knife. He starts hacking away at the wax around the wick. There is wax all over the stage at this point. He is just, just hacking it left and right, pass it across, said, that'll work. They pass it all across the stage. Bear in mind, this thong that they picked that was way too long is just going to be perfect because it's taken us forever to get to this point. <laughs> Finally put it back in place. Three more times. Did not, never lit. What do you do as the preacher? Who's going to officiate this deal? And the best I could come up with was, you know, this is really good this happened because, you know, there are a lot of things in life that are not going to work exactly like you planned. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> Everybody else is out there in the audience thinking, this is going for divorce court, sure as anything. <laughs> Ain't going to work. Not going to work. Right? Well, we've got to continue to ask the question, are we a good reflection of Jesus? Are we trying to be as much like the groom, yet still know we're going to have some flaws in us? We're not going to always have a consistent approach with the culture that we live in. But we're going to try our best. And, and one of the things that we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about two different women who are very desperate to reach out to Jesus. One of them had a physical problem. One of them had a spiritual problem. And I think that wraps up a lot of the needs out in culture. There are some people who are going to go through some really hard times. There, there's that... Uh, diagnosis of that big C word for some people. And they may not have talked to God before, but all of a sudden they're saying, I, I need to talk to this big guy. Is there anybody who really believes in this stuff called prayer? Uh, there are other times where there's a spiritual crisis in which someone says, I've tried everything this world has to offer, and I am at my wit's end. Nothing has made me happy. Nothing is satisfying me. I am miserable, I'm depressed, and I'm lonely, and I need something different in my life. And Jesus is there. And Jesus seemed to bring these people to him. I, it, it was a wonderful thing. We're going to talk about some of those things, but uh, the two women I'm going to talk about would be considered maybe in our society as throwaway people. They were the people who were not considered to be the elite. They were not the people who uh, you go, oh, I'm so glad you came to church today. They were the people that the church had actually screened out in many ways. They were not the people that you would expect to be at a church, most likely. But uh, I found that in my life, I don't know if this, this represents any uh, of you women in this room. My wife watches this uh, channel uh, that's where they fix everything. And this is not my wife, but this is what she, uh, some of our trips look like. Whoop. Hang on. There we are. Stop. Is that a chair, a dresser, a table, or something I could paint on the side of the road there? Are any of you guys married to women like that? I married one of these types. She literally stopped me one day, and she did this deal. Stop. Look at there. Look at there. I'm, I'm looking, and I'll go, it's a pile of trash. No, no, look at the door, the door. I'm going, we have doors in our house. No, we're going to make another door. And I said, we don't have a doorway for it to go in. Yes, we do. We'll take off an old, the, the, the one that's there. We'll put this in. Once we fix it up a little bit. And so I go out there and I look at that. And it is the ugliest door I've ever seen. It did have nice little glass panes and all. But it was in great disrepair. 
And my wife thinks, I am going to do this. So I, I think you know, you know what this means? DIY? What's, what does the word mean? Do it yourself. That was her idea. You do it yourself. Was she going to help with this at all? No. No. Uh, if I could have made a wristband, this is the wristband I would make for my wife. You've heard of WWJD? What would Jesus do? This is what can Robert fix? <laughs> I am not a handyman. I, I work hard. I'll do it a long time. And she said, you know, if you'll just put like 40 hours in on this door, I think it would be a beautiful door. It would be a treasure. Well, that's so easy for you to say. And she could visualize it. She could, oh, I can just see it? Well, if you can see it, do it. You know, do it yourself. And so we get in this fight back and forth. And you know what? That door is still in my garage. <laughs> now, it looks a little better than it did, but it's still there. And it ain't hanging on anything. So we, we struggle with this. What could this be? And sometimes we have a hard time with that with people because we think, oh, they're too far gone. Oh, they're, they're in too much disrepair. There's no way that Jesus could use them. Yet Jesus seemed to call them. And they just, he was like a magnet to these people saying, I want to be a part of your world and, and obviously do a different world in general. We're going to go to the first passage. It's going to be Mark chapter 5 if you have your Bibles. If you'll follow me over there. And one of the things that this story does is it talks about a, a real brush with greatness this, this woman had. And you'll see kind of her motive and what she's trying to, to, to go through. But bottom line is this woman had an issue of bleeding. And she was not supposed to be in that crowd. She was not allowed to go to the synagogue. She was basically isolated from everybody. But she was so desperate that day. She was willing to risk it all and go. So we start in verse 25. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she got worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, not even him, his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Now, a few things I just want to point out to you. Uh, her plan had been to literally go up and not touch his skin, but touch his clothes. And then what was her plan? going to sneak away. I'm going to get my healing, sneak away. And there are a lot of people out there in this world who would like to have what they call a little bit of Jesus or their little answer with Jesus, and then they're going to walk away. And yet, we know Jesus is going to stop that here in a second. But her plan, her plan was, I'm going to reach out, touch it. No one's going to know. No one's going to know. There's going to be a big crowd. She tried to mix in. And you know, sometimes, even in churches, we try to mix in. And get a little bit of Jesus. Not have to be called out. And the healing was instantaneous. She knew in her heart she had been healed. And Jesus feels it, it says. So it goes on to say that he realizes this. At once Jesus realized the power had gone out from him. He turned around the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? 
And of course, his apostles say, you see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Now, usually in scripture, we just keep on moving and all that stuff. But I want you to, to see this as a scene in a movie. Lots of people. Lots of people crowding around. Everyone is jostling and everything. And she reaches out and touches that rope. She's headed the other direction. She's going to get out of that crowd and get back home. She's got what she needed from Jesus. And he says, who touched me? And the apostles go, everybody touched you. The only thing I can ever compare this to is my wife, my lovely wife, the do-it-yourselfer. Uh, she loves to go to those after-Christmas sales in Dallas. So we get up at like ungodly hours, like 6 a.m., to go find something that was yesterday, it was $300. Today, it's only $0.30. Cents, and we're going to get that bargain. My wife is a bargain shopper. So I'm thinking, it's Dallas. You know, surely no one will be up at 6 a.m. There's 3,000 people there at Dillard's, all waiting to get in to get that $0.30 cent item that was 300 So I'm watching this, kind of interested. And about, you know, 540 I start feeling the crowd kind of pushing toward the doors. But the, they hadn't opened the doors yet, but I could just feel it. And then it gets a little closer. It's like 10 till. I start to really feel it. And there's a couple of people touching me in places I don't wish they wouldn't touch me. You know, I'm going, hey, 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 hey. And then Dillard's had the brilliant idea to open one door. Not all, all five or six of them. One for 3,000 people. And what happened was I literally could just pick my feet up and it just carried me in like a river. And if someone said, who's touching you? I'd go, he did and she did and he really shouldn't have touched me and get away from him and her. And I, I was touched by everybody. And so that, if you look at the old cities of, of that day and time, they're really narrow. And Jesus always drew a crowd. Man, they were going to see a healing, and so everybody's touching him. But he stops, and he says, who touched me? Apostles, he wasn't talking to them, really. He's talking to her. And he stops, and he looks. And Scripture we usually read on, well, no, no, no. He's waiting. He's looking. Who touched me? You know who you did, and you know who you are. Finally, she can't take it anymore. And she finally admits, okay, I'm going to tell you what happened. Here's what she said. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. She came clean. And he said a beautiful thing to her. He said, daughter, your faith is healed. You go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Fear. Received healing, but she had fear. And he relieved it instantly the minute he called her daughter. To my recollection, I do not ever remember Jesus ever calling any other woman daughter. She had been pushed out of her religious life, could not come to the synagogue, had been isolated from everything. And I have a feeling he even may have reached out and touched her. The scripture doesn't say it, but I just think that's probably the Jesus thing he would have done, realizing she had not been touched by anybody for so long. But when he calls her daughter, that's a beautiful thing. If I say the word daughter and compare you to my daughter, you are someone of incredible value. You're a treasure. 
And that's how he did it. And he talks about her faith. Your faith has healed you. Now, it was his power. But he complimented her on her faith. Faith always got Jesus' attention. If you want, to, if you want go, to go through a crisis, if you're going through some tough times, I want you to know, you show Jesus faith and he will notice it. He will be on alert because he sometimes doesn't see it very often. But if you show it, I'm telling you, he will show up. And he sure did with this woman. And one of the things that, that comes out of this is you see this beautiful relationship of someone who thought she was trash all of a sudden becoming a treasure. Now, the second woman we're going to talk about uh, is, is probably not quite as nice and innocent. Most would say she's a prostitute. And she was wanting to meet someone famous, a guy named Jesus. And we all, we all love to kind of get close to famous people. That, that, that helps us feel good and tells good stories. In fact, I'm going to tell you the most famous person I've ever met before, face-to-face. And I was getting ready to get on an airplane. As I, I get on airplanes, I usually like to wait till the last, so I'm not sitting there a long time. And so I'm walking up to the, the clerk. I give them my ticket, and all of a sudden the clerk kind of goes, oh! and I'm thinking, they recognize me? You know, that's, that's so interesting. And I realized she's looking up over my uh, shoulder. And I thought, oh, there must be someone really important standing right behind me. So I did one of these real casual, you know, kind of look back. I'm not sure that is who I think it is. That is someone extremely famous. I'm going to do something really sneaky. I'm going to look the other direction now. So I did one of these, and it was who I thought it was. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to be one of those people that fawn over heroes and idols and all that stuff. So I'm, I'm not going to make a big deal about it. But the person standing behind me, right, right here, right behind me, is... This guy, Muhammad Ali. At one point in time, he was the most famous face on this planet. Everybody knew him. And he was right here, right behind me. And he was getting on my plane. And I was going, whoa, what are the chances of this? Me getting to be with Muhammad Ali, but I didn't want to be one of those people, you know, that would bug him and ask for autographs. You know how those people are. And so I began to walk down the gangplank to the plane, and his wife started walking beside me because he got stopped by one of those people, you know. And so I'm walking and talking to her, and I said, I bet you get stopped in airports a lot. And she said, yeah. But she said, you know, the champ loves it. And I said, I'll be right back. <laughs> And I went back and got an autograph, shook his hand, and he, man, his hand like wrapped around mine like twice. And it was unbelievable. It's incredible, but that incredible meeting did not change my life. It's a neat story. It's a great thing, and we love to, to be able to say, I've met, in fact, if you shake my hand, you have been shaking the hand that shook Muhammad Ali's hands. If you want autographs after this is over, I'll, I'll be glad to do that and shake your hand. But bottom line is, Jesus is one of those people that changes lives just with a brush of the clothing. And this woman comes up and says, I need you. I'm desperate. Here's the setup. 
is in a Pharisee's house. The Pharisees were throwing a party. Now, that sounds like a pretty lame party to me uh, right off the bat. Can you imagine Pharisees throwing a party? It's kind of like the ACU Bible faculty throwing a wild party for a Christmas party. You know, we, we are partying for hours and hours, and no one in the neighborhood notices that we're partying. You know, it's just kind of like, ah. Well, Pharisees were kind of that, that way. They were not a lot of fun. They obviously could not feed you pigs in a blanket uh, to start with. <laughs> Sorry, a little kosher joke there. Small talk about the Sabbath rules, you know, no music probably. Uh, it just has lame written all over it. And this woman who's going to come in did not have an invitation. And I don't know if any of you have ever been to a place where you didn't belong or were not wanted. Uh, I have had a, a frequent thing that happens from time to time in my life in which I will walk into the wrong restroom. Uh, like, and the women don't seem to appreciate me being in their restroom uh, very much. And I look on the walls and the formations on the wall are not accurate and correct for men. And then I realize as the women come out of the stalls that I'm in the wrong spot. And I feel like I need to run out of those restrooms because they are horrified I'm in their space, in their holy space. By the way, I found out y'all have salad bars in your restaurant, in the restrooms, and the guys don't. Uh, that's why y'all stay in there so long during restaurant visits. But, uh, and don't eat when you get back, I hear. Uh, but you, you have all that, all that presence of lots of people together. She's the outsider. They're the insiders. They're religious insiders in this, and Jesus is there watching this. So it says in verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in the town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is and that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he said, tell me, teacher. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Do you see her? That's a really piercing question. Because if you look at the text, they never talk directly to her. Only Jesus. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears. And wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has been shown. But whoever is forgiven little, little loves, loves little. Then Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among them, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Scripture is, is pretty honest, pretty brutal. The Pharisees didn't talk to her. 
They saw she was there enough to notice her and notice her reputation in town, but they never really saw her. They never recognized her humanity. And if she was a woman who was a prostitute, you know from John chapter 8 how they looked and viewed prostitutes. You know that that was hostile territory for any woman with that reputation to walk into. Yet she was desperate to reach Jesus. So desperate she would overcome the hurdles and anxieties and embarrassment of her own sin. She would go into a hostile place where they wouldn't talk to her. They wouldn't even hardly look at her. And what you see is they saw her very differently than Jesus saw her. The Pharisees saw a sinner. They called her a sinner. Said out loud, sinner. What Jesus saw was a precious soul. What they had done on her is they had given up on her. And what Jesus saw was someone he could give a second chance to. What the Pharisees saw was her past behavior. And what Jesus saw was a future. Future that was bright. Future that could be very different because he would step into it. She did something that uh, makes a lot of men uncomfortable. She starts to cry. Can you imagine how awkward that was? And Jesus probably went, I can't wait to watch this. A woman crying in front of a group of men. And then she pulls out a gift. And a gift that, as we look at that gift, uh, I want you to see as much more than just some beautiful perfume. I want you to understand how she raised that money. It's a very expensive gift. She saved a long time by doing a lot of evil things, bad things. And when she offered that to Jesus, he didn't say, get that gift away. I know what you've done to get that gift. He accepted it. Because you see, inside that alabaster jar was her past. And she was telling him, I'm ready to follow you. If they'd had this song back in the day, she would have been singing all to Jesus, I surrender. All to Jesus, I surrender. I've tried everything else. I'm not happy. I'm willing to do anything to just get close enough to cry on your feet and wipe those tears with my hair because I need something. I'm desperate. And in that moment, it was a beautiful, beautiful scene. And of course, the Pharisees ruin it. But that's Jesus. That's what we're trying to emulate. That's how we're trying to see people. We're trying to understand how Jesus handled her is how we should treat and look to everyone who's outside these walls. And others in our community are coming and saying, I've messed up. I've tried it all. And I want to try Jesus again. How do we see with the eyes of Jesus? We have to understand. We see things very differently. We look at each other differently at times. We, we catalog it. You know, if you're in ministry long enough, I can, I can go through my whole church directory and tell you something bad about everybody in our directory. 
I can tell them, including myself. Because I, I need that catalog in case they ever jump on me as a minister. I go, oh yeah? You want, it, want me to open up this file? No! No, okay. You're fine. You did a great job. Super. <laughs> it comes in handy. But it's not very much like Jesus, is it? And there are some times that I have to really search and, and go, I need to see this person with Jesus' eyes. I need to take some chances. I need to have some people who are a little upset with me with who I hang out with from time to time. In youth ministry, it was really easy. I, I had some boys in my youth group early on in, in, at Southern Hills that uh, they were doing this little uh, activity on the weekend called jumping in. and It's basically called breaking and entering into a Coors plant where they had beer distributor in our town. Throwing kegs of beer over and then going and drinking the beer was kind of their normal weekend activity. And then they started inviting other members of my youth group to come join them. And they had plenty of beer because they stole it over and over and over again. Well, I found out about it, confronted the boys. They, of course, did what all boys do when they're confronted with their own sin. They lied to me, said, oh, no, we're, no, we're not doing that. And I said, okay, I just want you to know, if that ever happens again, if I ever hear that y'all are doing this, I'm going to come talk to your parents, and we're all sit down about that. Well, the activity stopped pretty quickly after that. But those kids were actually signing up to go on my mission trip. And I thought, ooh, bad idea. These boys, they're no telling what they will do. But there was something inside me that said, I need to look at them like Jesus looks at them. What could they become? Because they were leaders. These were not the kids who were just, you know, followers. They were the leaders. So I took them. And you know what? I got criticized. I had lots of parents. Are you sure you want to take those boys? Are you sure that's a good idea? Well, no, it's not a great idea, but it's the best I can do. Because Jesus needs to get a hold of these boys. And we took them. And they didn't do anything phenomenal on the trip. But one of them, about two weeks after the mission trip, walks in my office. He was on an errand to the store, grocery store for his mama. All of a sudden, God just started talking to him and said, it's time. You need to go all in with Jesus. So he walks in my office says, I'm ready. I'm ready to be baptized. What? What are, you, what are you doing? You just come up here to tell me that? No, I was on the way to the store to get bread. I said, okay, bread, baptism, okay. They're in the same vocabulary. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. I start calling kids. Hey, Kurt's going to get baptized. And they said, I figured it'd happen. I said, why did you figure that? Well, our van was praying for those boys while we were on mission trip. They would be in the other van. This van would be praying for them. They'd move to the other van. The other van would be praying for them. They said, we knew it happened. Well, I'm glad you told me. You know, that's good. Curtis is baptized. Scott's baptized. All of a sudden, they start becoming leaders for the other side, for the good guys. And all of a sudden, we went from a youth group of about 35, 6th through 12th graders, to 240. What it take? Took some young leaders. It wasn't me. It's God getting a hold of some boys. One of those boys... Decided he wanted to get married. Later on, asked me to do the wedding. Said I'd be glad to. We're getting ready to walk out, come up here for the wedding. And Scott looks over, and uh, by the way, he was getting ready to marry the preacher's daughter. And I said, by the way, I said, 
y'all did that stealing the beer and all that stuff. He said, yeah, we did. He said, we couldn't figure out how you found that out. And I said, God told me <laughs> through an eighth grade girl. Not only did they get married, in fact, I did both the uh, Curtis's and Scott's wedding. I did, did that and, and got to see their lives really uh, become incredible. Those two boys became youth deacons in their churches. Long-term, incredible volunteers. Unbelievable legacy that they have left in youth ministry from someone willing to see them with the eyes of Jesus not saying they cannot possibly uh, do anything good in this life. Uh, some, some of the things that we, we do uh, as far as just application on this is we let people who have messed up carry their jars too long. They carry their past. It's like they're rereading the same chapter of a book over and over and over again. We need to start telling some folks they need to move on to new chapters and make new chapters. The church needs to remind them of that. Jesus didn't talk about their past very much. He always talked about their future. Go and sin no more. It's a phrase he would use. He would always talk about uh, having abundant life and going and becoming something incredibly special. So that's what they did, and these women did this and showed that in a great ending. And the other thing that we have to be really careful about is making sure that when someone repents and they come back, that we don't hurt them once they've repented. A lot, of, a lot of people come back to church and we, we like shoot them a second time and tell them, we got to remind you, you messed up. Uh, that allows Satan to have the power. When you feel guilty over and over and over and over again and keep rereading that same chapter, that's Satan getting in control of their minds. What we need to be looking for is future. How can we be, get better? How can we learn from our mistakes and move on? And start brand new chapters. I've, I've seen it once again in people's lives. That's where I love to talk about it because it's real, because you see it and it's noticeable and it's, and it's powerful. I had a kid in my youth group. He was, he was in the youth group with Curtis and Scott, but he was a total mess. He was the one that was obnoxious. He was hard to get along with. He said all the wrong things at all the wrong times. And the worst part was he showed up for every single youth event I ever planned. I literally remember at night sometimes going, please, Lord, please let Glenn stay home. You know, I need a break. I, I, I need a, you know, a wilderness. I'll go to the wilderness, but please don't let Glenn be there when I show up in the wilderness. He was awful. He, he drove a truck, and he would peel out of the truck parking lot, and all you people with small kids, you would be doing this with Glenn around. I had parents who would say, you can go with anyone to the youth devo except for Glenn because he drives too fast, and he's dangerous. And I can't tell you the numbers of times we had to pull his truck out of mud and out of trees and all that stuff. Glenn was a mess. Yet he came, and he came, and we kept going. Jesus can actually use Glenn. I'm not sure how. Not sure how, but Jesus is going to use Glenn someday. Well, he graduated went off and uh, went to college and then we didn't hear from him for a while. And then I got a letter in the mail from his mother. Glenn's mother wrote me a note and said, you never gave up on Glenn. And I know that was hard many days because I felt the same thing as a mom. But I need to show you what he became. And I attribute a lot of the youth ministry to what happened to Glenn. Here's what he did. He's a cop. 
Dallas. You know my first thought? They gave Glenn a gun. <laughs> my second thought was, they gave Glenn a gun. But then I realized it was, it was perfection. It was the perfect job for Glenn. Glenn, for the first time in his life, would be able to drive fast legally. <laughs> in fact, I, I promise, somewhere along the way during the police academy, there was someone teaching him how to drive at fast speeds and do spins and all that stuff. And I bet you Glenn started teaching the class himself and showing other people how to tutor uh, him. The other thing about Glenn I didn't tell you is Glenn never got hurt on trips, but anyone around Glenn did. I took many students to emergency rooms because of what Glenn would do to them. Uh, if uh, something broke, stitches, all that stuff, I'd go, was Glenn at that house? Uh-huh. Glenn. Glenn shattered one of those long panel van windows one time on a mission trip by squeezing a little stuffed animal in the, in the window and squeezed down on it a little too hard, shattered the whole glass into a bajillion pieces. Was Glenn hurt? No. Were we picking glass out of other kids' eyes? Yes. And then I thought of this, and I thought, hey, Glenn's got a little angel on his shoulder that keeps him safe. So he's in the perfect job. He will not get hurt, but I feel badly for all the crooks in Dallas. <laughs> they are going to get really hurt badly. God does this over and over. And the world's looking for stories like this. He's looking for people like this. And he wants us to reflect that in this community. He wants us to be seeing people that are desperate. He wants us to be saying, do you need help? We've got some answers. I pray that you will continue to fight and look and search the scriptures on. How did Jesus do it? How did he bring them in? Watch his language as he's so soft in language to the sinners and so harsh at times with the religious people who get in their way, get between him and Jesus, them and Jesus. Watch for it. I think it'll make a difference and we can start bringing some people back in to our place that are saying, I'm ready to try something new. I'm ready to go all in. We're going to sing a song here in just a second. I want to pray over you. Uh, I, I really appreciate your time and attention this weekend. This has been a, a real encouragement to me, but I hope I've been an encouragement to you to be more like Christ and to really reach out to those around you that need Him so desperately. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for our time together today to worship you, to know that you are first and foremost our God and someone who loves us irrationally in all that you do. I thank you, Lord, that you allow us to worship in this place without fear. I, I thank you that we live in this town and culture that sometimes does not know you, but we pray that we will be lights among the darkness and that they will come toward the light through our lives and through our influence. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.